Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. And so I do try and post things throughout the week on the Facebook page, so um, do try and catch up with that as well. Okay, a note before we begin. I'm going to ask you to take a few minutes to call Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam at 615-741-2001 to add your voice to those calling for him to grant clemency for Cytonia Brown. Brown, who I hope that you've heard of already, was a victim of child sex trafficking and has been sentenced to at least 51 years in jail for killing her assaulter. Now, this is an outrage beyond belief. Um, And so if there's anything that we can do to help save her, we must do that. Um, because this is just such an outrageous um, issue. And so that number again is 615-741-2001. And um, there's already a link on the Facebook page as well. Um, I believe it's the Freedom from Religious Found- Religion Foundation's uh, information about it, because this is important to everyone. Um this kind of injustice. It doesn't matter what your other interests are. Things like this are just, they cut across everything. Um, And it's just so outrageous. And I really hope um, that he actually comes through and grants her clemency. Um, You know, she's a young person of color uh, who basically never had a chance at having a life. Um, but hopefully we can change that together as a nation. Okay. So that's all for that. (laughs) Uh, let us now get into the real meat of, uh, the program. So we're going to start off tonight and we're going to spend quite a bit of time actually, uh, talking about space. Now space is just been, uh, you know, all over in the news lately And uh, there are lots of other things I like to talk about. Um, I often think that I talk about space a little too much, but it's something that people really are interested in. And there are just so many interesting things that happened in the last couple of weeks. So let us start off with news of what is an old friend to one and all when it comes to space, which is the Voyager 2 probe. So NASA is reporting that 41 years after it's after it first left the Earth to do its incredible science work in the solar system, it has crossed the outer edge of the heliosphere. And so this boundary is actually called the heliopause, and it marks the area where the last breath of the hot solar winds meets the cold, dense interstellar medium. Now, Voyager 1 passed this milestone in 2012, and both probes have working instruments that allow NASA to receive information about the transition. 
However, Voyager 2 still has a functioning PLS, or Onboard Plasma Science Experiment, which gave researchers the tip-off that the probe was leaving the solar system. Until recently, it had been mostly recording solar winds by using electric current in the plasma to detect the speed, density, temperature, pressure, and flux of the wind. However, the amount being detected took a dive starting on November 5th. Since then, solar wind plasma is no longer being detected, giving the researchers confidence that the probe has officially left the solar system. Now, three other instruments, the Cosmic Ray Subsystem, the Low Energy Charged Particle Instrument, and the Magnetometer, all support this finding. Now, despite being a mind-blowing 11 billion miles from the Earth, again, Voyager is still sending back info. Uh, and to sort of really visualize, in a way, how far away that is, um, you know, the information travels at the speed of light, but it takes 16.5 hours for data to come to either from NASA to Voyager or from Voyager back to NASA. That is very, very long. Um, the sun is very far away and it takes about eight minutes for uh, light from the sun to reach us. Um, so yeah, um, it's, it's pretty far away now. Voyager has a very special place for us in our heliophysics fleet, said Dr. Nic Nicola Fox, director of the heliophysics division at NASA headquarters. Our studies start at the sun and extend out to everything the solar wind touches. To have the Voyagers sending back information about the edge of the sun's influence gives us an unprecedented glimpse of truly uncharted territory. And again, it is just amazing that these probes are still working for NASA after all of this time. You know, and there are people who disparage NASA, uh, you know, and say, why do we need to be doing these things? Why do they need so much money? Uh, but they clearly don't understand how amazing the work that they do is. And of course, uh, one of the things that I've been kind of delving into recently, um, I'm not really sure why, um, I seem to be kind of a intellectual masochist, um, but I've been watching a lot of videos, debunking at least, um, people who believe in the flat earth. And flat earthers really, really, really dislike NASA. They have this insane idea that NASA is just a bunch of people who sit around uh, pulling in government money and uh, lying. And it's just so frustrating because NASA is actually doing all these amazing things. And um, to have people basically say that there is no such thing as space. Um, some of them actually believe that there is a fixed dome. Uh, and so there literally is nothing uh, called space out there. Um, it's really crazy. But um, it is very frustrating because, again, NASA is doing all these great things. Uh, you know, getting to space is really hard. And they have managed to do it over and over again. They have projects that have survived for 
decades after their primary missions have completed, and they've still been able to make them have missions that bring in new data. And so, yeah, it's very frustrating. Um, and so we are going to talk about all the cool things that NASA is doing. And uh, we're going to fight in our own little corner the idea that they are not being helpful and that they aren't actually going out into space because they really are. Um, so just starting, it's NASA mission, and we've talked about it uh, last week, is the InSight probe, which recently sent back a mosaic of 11 photos that showed the entire probe and everything looks great, according to NASA. It looks like it is ready to get going and to do some fantastic science. And in fact, uh, the probe also sent back a second mosaic of 52 images showing the immediate area around the craft. And so this is allowing the team to confirm that there are several great spots for deployment of the instruments that require contact with the surface. And it turns out that the probe actually ended up in a rock-free hollow created by an ancient meteor impact, which basically has been slowly filling with sand. The near absence of rocks, hills, and holes means it'll be extremely safe for our instruments, said InSight's principal investigator Bruce Bannert in a statement. This might seem like a pretty plain piece of ground if it weren't on Mars, but we're glad to see that. So hopefully, InSight will continue to perform exactly as needed in order for us to learn more about the composition of Mars and other things that might help us learn more about the uh, composition and uh, evolution of Mars and, it, it, and its um, atmosphere, its uh, ability to have a um, liquid center, and things like that. Oh, and I also posted uh, pictures on the Facebook page. Um, I posted a link to an article with pictures, uh, which is actually from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So that is a satellite that has been orbiting Mars since 2006, doing its own science. And so it actually was able to take a kind of fuzzy but uh, still very important picture of uh the InSight rover, so we know exactly where it is now on the surface of the planet because it can be kind of hard to sort of pinpoint where it is um, if you don't have that kind of imaging. So that is very cool. Now, we actually have three more NASA probes to talk about because, again, NASA has basically been doing gangbusters. Um, and so, yeah, you do kind of start to get a little bit tired of <laughs> talking about this maybe, but I still think it's really cool. And, you know, I'm actually someone who has traditionally been a little more, uh, reticent about the idea of, um, some of these NASA things where, you know, I think that people have this, uh, kind of unreasonable expectation of going into, uh, space and basically leaving the earth behind. But these kind of basic science probes, I'm all about. I think it's really um, interesting and fascinating to be learning more about uh, our universe. 
and our just our local solar, solar system. Okay, so first let's talk about OSIRIS-REx. We also uh, checked in with them last week. And so they have, that probe has already, I shouldn't anthropomorphize it, <laughs> uh, that probe has already discovered hydrated minerals on the surface of the asteroid. And so the presence of such minerals suggests that liquid water was once plentiful in the interior of whatever uh, parent body Bennu actually came from. So um, if you didn't hear last week, Osiris-Rex has um, is approaching this asteroid called Bennu, and it actually just sent back a really cool picture. Uh, and so, yeah. And so... They think that the parent body would have been a roughly 62-mile-wide asteroid, which would have been in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and that at some point it basically got hit by something else and broke apart. And so part of that debris formed Bennu. Now, this is exciting because the researchers are trying to better understand the role of asteroids in the early solar system and to determine if they played a part in delivering water and other chemical building blocks of life to the early Earth. We targeted Bennu precisely because we thought it had water-bearing minerals and, by analogy with, other, with the carbonaceous chondrite meteorites that we've been studying organic material. OSIRIS-REx Principal Investigator Dante Loretta of the University of Arizona said during a news conference, That still remains to be seen. We have not detected the organics, but it definitely looks like we're going to the right place. And so the probe has used its two onboard spectrometers to find hydroxyls, which are bonded together oxygen and hydrogen atoms, which they suspect are widespread on the object and locked in clay minerals. And so they've, the probe has also helped to confirm the shape models uh, that they derived five years ago using radar data from the Arecibo and Goldstone radio telescopes, uh, which were the basic uh, basis for the design of the mission. So, you know, they had to kind of guess at what uh, Bennu looked like so that they can sort of make the plan for what they were going to do once they got there. And luckily enough, it turns out that their <laughs> guesses were right. Um, because again, these sorts of objects, they're sometimes hard to see, and they're often, um, you know, really far out there, and it's hard to tell exactly what they look like until you actually send a probe there. And so pictures sent back by the craft as it approaches Bennu show that the asteroid is covered with an array of boulders, which will actually make materials collection kind of tricky. But the NASA team isn't worried. They have until July of 2020 to work out how to do that safely. Now, uh, once the probe has taken samples of the asteroid, those will be returned to Earth in a special return capsule, uh, which should come back in September of 2023. And so uh, Bennu, uh, the OSIRIS-REx is almost to the point where it is orbiting Bennu, um, but it is basically still maneuvering into its final uh, position to actually orbit the asteroid. And that will happen actually, I think on the 31st. 
uh, it should get into the final position for its actual mission. And so once those materials are brought back, they'll be made available to an international team of scientists. And so among the questions those researchers hope to tease out are whether or not there is enough water to possibly support mining activities on these kinds of asteroids. Um, and also, I would consider more importantly, information about the forces that affect an asteroid's trajectory, uh, which could lead to a better understanding of potentially dangerous asteroids. We have an awesome asteroid to explore, Loretta said. It's a dream come true, and it's an honor and a privilege to be able to lead a program like this for NASA and the United States and really for the world. So the next one we're going to talk about is uh, the Parker Solar Probe. And so this one's a little less well-known, uh, but it has just sent back images from the edge of the sun's corona. And so the probe has already broken the record for fastest spacecraft and has now also flown closer to the sun than any previous mission. And it's actually going to get closer even. What we are looking at now is completely brand new solar physicist Nor Raru Rarafi uh, of Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Lab in Laurel, Maryland, said at a news conference. Nobody's looked at this before. Launched on October excuse me, launched on August 12th, the probe will make 24 close passes of the sun over the next seven years. The closest will be around 3.7 million miles from the sun's surface. Now, the first flyby was on November 6th, and it was twice as close as the previous Helios spacecraft uh, that did flybys back in the 1970s. Now, there is one glitch. Uh, because the probe was on the opposite side of the sun from Earth at the time, we didn't actually start receiving data until December 7th, uh, and we haven't gotten all of it yet. But one of the images that we did get shows unprecedented detail of a solar streamer, which is a filament of plasma in the corona. Now, the team is hoping that Parker will help decipher why the corona is around 300 times hotter than the sun's surface. Now, because of the distance and nature of the orbit again, uh, scientists only received about one-fifth of the data collected by the probe. And so uh, they are expecting to get the rest of it next year. If you ask any scientist in the team or even outside what to expect, I think the answer would be, we really don't know, Rawafi said. Uh, we are almost certain we'll make new discoveries. So that's very exciting um, because, you know, even though we know a lot about the sun, there's still a lot we don't know about the sun. Um, again, for instance, the fact that the outside of it is 300 times hotter than the surface of the interior of the actual sun itself. And that's weird. And we don't know why. <laughs> we really, it, that's a big, that's a big unknown. Like, 
it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> the interior of the sun should actually be hotter than this external corona, and yet not so much. <laughs> so hopefully we will learn some great things with the uh, Parker probe. Okay, so the last of the NASA uh spacecraft that we're going to talk about tonight is a personal favorite. Um, and so that is NASA's New Horizons, which has taken new images of Ultima Thule, um, which if you don't remember is the craft's next target. And uh, just as a reminder, New Horizons is the probe that sent us all of those insanely amazing pictures of Pluto and has just been doing such great work. As the New Horizons spacecraft closes in on its target, Ultima Thule is getting brighter and brighter in the LORI optical navigation images, said New Horizons project scientist Dr. Hal Weaver, uh, again from Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. It's now standing out much more clearly among the sea of background stars. And so the images were actually taken just over a day before a course correction maneuver was executed with these small thrusters firing for 105 seconds. <laughs> and that changed the velocity by just over 2.2 miles per hour. <laughs> the maneuver the most distant trajectory correction ever made was designed to keep New Horizons on track towards its ideal arrival time and closest distance to Ultima, just 2,200 miles at 12.33 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 1st, 2019. So that's real soon. <laughs> uh, and so... It is very exciting, and I am super, super pumped to see what we get back from New Horizons because it has done such amazing work so far. I mean, those images of Pluto were just breathtaking. They were stunning. And, you know, just the it's sometimes hard to think about the fact that we went from pictures of Pluto that were basically just a sort of vaguely spherical smudge of pixels to these high resolution, amazing portrait like pictures of this planet. And it's just so cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, there is a lot to be said for uh, space and its uh, ability to attract sort of uh, the love of figuring things out and learning new things. And so we're actually going to stay in space for a few more minutes. Uh, first is an update on Oumuamua, uh, which moved through the solar system back in October of 2017. And so that's the uh, sort of uh, very flat, long and flat, almost kind of like a, um, more like a... Uh, plastic knife or like a knife uh, kind of shape than you would normally see. Uh, most things are a little more spherical. And so there was some talk that maybe it was uh, not natural in its origin. 
And so SETI researchers used the Allen Telescope Array to search for radio transmissions from the object that would have indicated that it did have a non-natural origin. We were looking for a signal that would prove that this object incorporates some technology, that it was of artificial origin, said SETI Institute researcher Dr. Jerry, Jerry Harp, who is a lead author of a paper published online in the journal Acta Astronautica. We didn't find any such emissions, despite a quite sensitive search. While our observations don't conclusively rule out a non-natural origin for Oumuamua, they constitute important data in assessing its likely makeup. So that pretty much says, as you probably could have guessed, that the idea that Oumuamua is an alien probe uh, hasn't gotten any more uh, realistic than it was uh, before they did this test. So it's probably just a weird looking natural object. Okay. And so finally, let's talk about, take a second to talk about the Chinese space probe uh, that is just getting off the ground and on its way to the moon. And so the Chang'e 4 lander and rover were launched last week from the um, Xishang Satellite Launch Center. And so the Chang'e 4 is aimed for the moon's far side. And so if you don't remember, the moon is tidally locked with the Earth. And so that means that its rotation is synced in such a way that we always see the same side of the surface, and thus there is a bright side and a dark side from our perspective. And so the Chinese Space Agency has already launched the Kuikiao uh, satellite earlier this year, and so that is meant to communicate with the lander and the rover. Now, the mission is meant to explore the composition of the von Karaman crater, which is the largest impact crater on the surface at 115 miles across. That's pretty big. <laughs> A spectrometer and radar will be used to explore the area of the landing. And so one thing they'll actually be assessing is whether or not the dark side of the moon could be a good location for a radio telescope because it's actually blocked from radio noise coming from the Earth since it's always pointed away from the Earth. And so the lander also carried seeds as part of a miniature biosphere experiment, uh, which will attempt to grow vegetables in the lunar soil. So that's also very interesting. And so this spacecraft should arrive sometime around the 4th of January at its destination. And the Chinese Space Agency is already working on plans to send the Chang'e 5 uh, to the moon next year to return samples uh, from the moon. And they actually hope to have a man on the moon by the 2030s. And of course, uh, we are also apparently trying to get back to the moon, um, which I think is, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about uh, human uh, space exploration, but, you know, I think it's still good uh, to do things that are aspirational. And especially, um, you know, there is a ton of technological know-how that has to go into those kinds of 
uh, programs and we end up getting a lot of kind of um, side effect uh, technologies. So a lot of things that we use today were developed during various space programs. Uh, NASA has developed a ton of things that we use in everyday life today that were originally meant to solve some sort of problem for astronauts or for space probes. So um, I definitely don't want to discourage it. Okay, so that is all of my stories about space for tonight. <laughs> so let's take a few minutes of break to do some PSAs and some show promos. And then we will come back and we will move on to other things. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. 
Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, this is Christina Mars with the Asylum Streets Bankers, and you're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM, Northampton. There's a monster under my bed. There's a monster in my bathtub. Mine is on my dresser. There's a monster in the kitchen. For a child with asthma, it can seem like monsters are everywhere. There's a monster in my pillow. There's one on the rug. The fact is, their next asthma attack could be triggered by something as innocent as a teddy bear or a dripping faucet, even a bath toy. I don't like monsters. Fortunately, there are simple ways you can help prevent their next attack, from putting stuffed animals in the freezer to kill dust mites, to drying bath toys and turning on the bathroom fan to prevent mold. They're easy to do, and they're part of a complete plan that could help you put an end to your child's asthma attacks. Learn more at noattacks.org or call 866-NO-ATTACKS. Make your monsters go away. Because their next breath is in your hands. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back. And like I said, we are going to move away from talking about space because um, we've done a lot of that tonight and uh, we're going to talk about other things. And so the first thing is super, super exciting to me personally um, because I do have a large interest in archaeology and anthropology. And so uh, if this really is as amazing as uh, everyone seems to think it is, I'm super excited. So it turns out that two stalagmites found in a cave in China are being hailed as a holy grail for accurate radiocarbon dating. Now, um, stalagmites are those sort of pillars that form from uh, dripping water mixed with uh, um, soluble uh, rock, usually limestone and things like that. And they create those sorts of, uh, you know, they, they create stalagmites and stalactites in caves. And I'm going to forget which one is which. <laughs> so don't ask. <laughs> and so uh, it is very exciting. And because radiocarbon dating is basically the cornerstone of archaeological uh, work. And so in order to be able to sort of figure out when things happened, we rely upon radiocarbon dating. And actually, uh, we'll 
um, another thing that this particular find will be have will be helpful with <laughs> is um, client climate science. And so by using the ratio of carbon isotopes in a sample, scientists are able to determine when a sample would have been living. So the sample has to have carbon in it, obviously, because we're comparing carbon isotopes. So generally, it's something that has either been a plant or a person or is something that was associated with a plant or a person um, or an animal, I should say. Um, any kind of animal, not just people. And so these two stalagmites were found to have an unbroken chronological atmospheric record that stretches back to the last ice age. With a record of the amount of carbon-12 and carbon-14 ratios in the samples, more precise dating will be able to be achieved, hopefully. And so they were found in the Hulu cave near Nanjing. And so again, these records, the record of layers stretch back to 54,000 years ago. And so the big thing that this is going to affect is radiocarbon calibration. Calibration is really the key to carbon dating. And so the ratio of C12 to C14 fluctuates over time, which is how scientists are able to actually pinpoint when a carbon-based species lived using carbon uh, dating. And so um, the further back in time we go, though, the harder it becomes to know what that true ratio is. And in addition, by between 55 and 60,000 years ago, the amount of C14 becomes statistically insignificant. Um, and so you can no longer use uh, carbon, radiocarbon dating in order to uh, date samples. Now, there are other kinds of uh, dating. There are other kinds of radiometric dating um, that use other isotopes, but we're not going to talk about that tonight. And so one of the traditional methods for calibration is by sampling tree rings, but that only takes us back to between 12,600 and 14,000 years ago. Now, another way is to study coral reefs, but that again has disadvantages. But this new find, again, might be a real revolution. Up to now, different, approach, different approaches for C14 calibration have their own constraints, I told Gizmodo. For instance, it remains difficult to use tree rings to calibrate the atmospheric C14 beyond the current limit of around 14,000 years before present. Corals do not accumulate continuously over thousands of years and are difficult to collect since those in the time range of interest are now largely submerged. Stalagmites, which can be excellent choices for thorium-230 dating, typically contain a significant fraction of carbon ultimately derived from limestone bedrock. And so co-author Larry Edwards, who is a geologist at UC Berkeley, actually developed a method for using thorium-239 in order to do this kind of radiocarbon calibration uh, way back in the 80s, but he couldn't find any samples that were clean enough. 
And so when they say um, that a significant fraction of carbon ultimately derived from limestone bedrock in that previous uh, quote, that means basically that those stalagmites didn't have the right kind of composition in order to be useful, that they were basically contaminated with limestone bedrock um, composition, which didn't help with radiocarbon dating. In addition to carbon from the atmosphere, cave deposits contained carbon from the limestones around the cave, Edwards stated. We thus needed to make a correction for the limestone-derived carbon. We discovered that the Hulu cave samples contained very little limestone-derived carbon and are therefore nearly ideal for this kind of study. Hence, our ability to complete a precise calibration of the C-14 timescale, a goal of the scientific community for the last nearly seven decades. And what's really exciting is that it will be especially useful for samples that are between 14,000 and 54,000 years old. And again, if we can make it more precise, that will also be a huge boon. So with present methods, a sample that is 40,000 years old might be classed as having a C14 date of around 35,000. And with calibration could be dated to around 38,000 years. So that can be a difference of between two and five thousand years, depending on which calibration method that you choose. And, you know, that's pretty significant. <laughs> that is a big range when you're trying to study the remains of animals and plants and people at these long scale times. Now, the other thing is, as mentioned above, the samples can actually also be used by climate scientists because basically what they're doing is they're capturing snapshots of the atmosphere in all of these different times. And so that can be really, really helpful for climate scientists as well as they look at models of how the atmosphere has changed over time and how we look forward. So very exciting. Now, speaking of archaeology, a new study by University of Kent researcher Alastair Combs and University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh's Dr. Martin Sweatman suggests that Paleolithic people were aware of the movement of the stars and were able to use this information for marking dates. Artworks at Paleolithic sites across Europe are not simply depictions of wild animals, the researchers wrote. Instead, the, animals, the animal symbols represent star constellations in the night sky and are used to represent dates and mark events such as comet strikes. And so they looked at Paleolithic art featuring animals from sites in Turkey, Spain, France, and Germany, and they found remarkable similarities and consistency with the known positions of the stars at the time that those works were created using uh, basically software modeling uh, that kind of works back from where the stars are now. The Paleolithic artworks revealed that, perhaps as far back as 40,000 years ago, humans kept track of time using knowledge of how the position of the stars slowly changed over thousands of years, they noted. The findings suggest that ancient people understood an effect caused by the gradual shift of Earth's rotational axis. 
the discovery of this phenomenon, called precession of the equinoxes, was previously credited to the ancient Greek astronomer um, Hipparchus. Around the time that Neanderthals became extinct, and perhaps before mankind settled in Western Europe, people could define it dates to within 250 years. And so the authors suggest that there is confirmatory evidence to suggest that carvings at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey commemorate a comet strike around 11,000 BCE, which led to a mini ice age, which is often referred to as the Younger Dryas period. They also suspect that the artwork of the um, Leskow shaft scene uh, commemorates another comic strike around 15,200 BCE. The world's oldest sculpture, the Lion Man of Hohenstein Stadel, um, the Hohenstein Stadel Cave, uh, which dates to 38,000 BCE, has also uh, been seen to fit into the theory developed by the pair. Early cave art shows that people had advanced knowledge of the night sky within the last ice age. Intellectually, they were hardly any different from us today, Dr. Sputman said. These findings support a theory of multiple comic comet impacts over the course of human development and will probably revolutionize how prehistoric populations are seen. Now, of course, <laughs> as with any revolutionary interpretation of ancient art and artifacts, it does remain to be seen if the rest of the anthropological and archaeological community will actually embrace these theories. Um, and so that is definitely still uh, one of those things that is up in the air. Um, I'm not sure. It, you know, they do make a compelling argument. And certainly one of my continual arguments about uh, human populations is that they absolutely were just as intelligent as we are today. They simply didn't have the uh, built up knowledge that we have that has been built upon thousands and thousands of years of human thinking and human ingenuity. Um, but that if you, you know, took someone from that time as a baby and raised them as a modern human, you'd never be able to tell the difference. So maybe they were that excellent, but we'll have to see what happens. Okay, so let us move on now to another potential revolution uh, in the world of agriculture. Now, again, this is another potential um, the science is pretty young at the moment. Now, contrary to what is often popular belief, many crops that are grown cannot be grown from the seeds they produce because they are hybrids and the seeds they produce do not have the same genetic makeup as the original plant because when you have hybrids and they recombine the genes you get different combinations. Now, hybrids have been produced since the 1920s commercially. And so again, they generally don't produce seeds that have the same genetic makeup. This means that farmers must purchase new seeds each year in order to grow the same crop. 
And again, this is simply a matter of genetics and doesn't have any nefarious processes behind it. However, a discovery by postdoctoral researcher Imtiaz Kande and Venkatsen Sundaresan, professor of plant biology and plant sciences at UC Davis and colleagues at UC Davis, the Iowa State University, and INRA in France, may lead to hybrid plants which can produce clone seeds. Now again, right now the process is in its infancy, pun intended, uh, so we probably won't see anything for several years at the very earliest, but it could be a game changer if it can be fully developed. The goal is to produce plants that are able to produce clone seeds and so, if possible, this would lead to farmers in the developing world having a much larger array of agricultural crops available to them because they wouldn't have to have that sort of cycle of continually buying seeds every year and putting that money into seeds that they make from the crop, that they could invest initially in those seeds and then the crops would produce seeds that could be saved and re-sown the next year. Now, currently, around 400 species of wild plants can produce clone seeds without fertilization, which is called apomixis, but no commercially grown seeds have this trait, at least no commercial hybrid seeds. And so the researchers discovered that the rice gene BBM1, which belongs to a family of plant genes called baby boom or BBM, uh, is expressed in the sperm cells, but not in eggs. And so after fertilization, BBM1 is expressed in the fertilized egg, but initially comes from the male genetic material. The researchers therefore hypothesized that the BBM1 was a switch to signal a fertilized egg to form an embryo. So what they did was they first stopped the plants from going through meiosis, wherein the cells divided into four daughter cells, which each have only half the number of chromosomes from the parent cell. And so instead, egg cells were produced by mitosis, which leaves a full set of chromosomes for, from the mother in each of the two uh, daughter cells. The researchers then activated the BBM1 gene in the mother's genome. So we have a diploid egg cell with the ability to make an embryo, and that grows into a clonal seed, Sundarason said. Now, again, at the moment, the process is only about 30% successful, but they hope to improve the number with more research. The beauty of this work is that it addresses fundamental questions in plant biology about how a fertilized egg begins to develop into a new plant, said Anne Sylvester, a program director at the National Science Foundation, which supported the research. This basic understanding, combined with new asexual breeding technologies, opens the door for breakthroughs in plant agriculture by avoiding the loss of beneficial traits that can occur through sexual reproduction. Now, of course, efforts like these are what genetic engineering is really about, making plants that benefit people and allow for a wider distribution of healthy, safe crops to feed a growing world population. Okay, so let us finish up tonight 
in our last few minutes with a hopeful story about bees. <laughs> now, I'm still not convinced of the so-called bee apocalypse. Um, I still think that there's a lot of uh, disparate information out there about what's truly going on. But I do know that there is definitely this disease out here out there that is really devastating to bees. And it turns out that it looks like this bacterial disease might be uh, able to be uh, actually combated. And so researchers in Finland have made the first ever quote unquote vaccine for insects, which is aimed at the deadly disease American fowl brood or AFB. And so this is this is an infectious disease which basically devastates a hive and spreads at an alarmingly fast rate. And so it's often introduced by nurse bees, and the disease works by bacteria bacteria feeding on larvae, which then generate spores, which infect more larvae and basically continue the cycle of infection. Now, some researchers are skeptical of the idea that you can create a vaccine. Insects' immune systems don't have antibodies and therefore don't necessarily have the memory component used by vaccines in most cases. However, scientists Dahlia Freitag and Heli Salmela of the University of Helsinki say that they've solved this problem by studying a protein called vitilogenin and by observing that insects exposed to the bacteria were able to impart an elevated immune response to their offspring. When the queen bee eats something with pathogens in it, the pathogen's signature molecules are bound by vitigenin. Vitagenin then carries these signature molecules into the queen's eggs, where they work as inducers for future immune responses. Now we've discovered the mechanism to show that you can actually vaccinate them, Freetag said in a release. You can transfer a signal from one generation to another. Now, the researchers call their vaccine Prime B <laughs> and say that it can be delivered to the queen via a sugar patty. Or beekeepers could actually order a queen that has already been vaccinated. Now, the vaccine is still in safety trials, but it could be a boon to the bee population, which has certainly been fluctuating in recent years, but is also crucial to our food supply. And people also really like you know, honey. <laughs> now, this disease is particularly awful because it involves bacteria which spread the spores and basically preys on the natural habitat of bees to keep their hives tidy. So as they clean out cells, the spores are further distributed among the hive. While the disease can be treated with antibiotics, there is no cure. Tony Burnham, president of the D.C. Beekeepers Alliance in Washington, notes that if an infection is detected in a colony in either D.C. or Maryland, regardless of the level of infection, the colony and all associated structures are burned. It's why beekeepers recommend never to buy used hives or equipment. They have pulled 100-year-old samples out of storage and have been able to re-inoculate honeybee hives with American fowl brood spores, she said. Now, the Finnish researchers plan to keep on working against the diseases which affect bees. We hope that we can also develop a vaccination against other infections, such as European fowl brood and fungal diseases, Freetag said in a statement. 
We have already started initial tests. The plan is to be able to vaccinate against any microbe. And so hopefully the vaccine will survive the safety trials and we will be able to feel a little bit safer about the wonderful bees and all that they do for us. Okay. And as you could tell by my speeding up, uh, <laughs> that is all the time I have for tonight. So uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.